Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Sonal Dugar. I'm a fourth-year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today's episode is part one of a multi-part series on hyperinflammatory syndromes in children. Today, we will focus on Kawasaki disease that we will sometimes call KD. I am excited that we are joined by pediatric hospitalist Dr. Zach Hodges and pediatric cardiologist Dr. Pushpa Shivaram. Do each of you want to introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about your education and training? Sure. I'm Zach Hodges. I'm a pediatrician in the Division of Hospital Medicine here at MCG and a recent graduate of a pediatric residency. And I am Pushpa Shivaram. I'm one of the pediatric cardiologists here at Medical College of Georgia, and I completed my fellowship training at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Thanks for having me today. Of course. So to get things started, Dr. Shivaram, what exactly is Kawasaki disease and why do we need to know about it? Kawasaki disease is an acute self-limited febrile illness that mostly affects children less than five years of age. Though the etiology is unclear, we know that it is a multi-system medium vessel vasculitis that may lead to coronary artery aneurysms in about 25% of the patients if it is left untreated. Unfortunately, it is the leading cause of acquired heart disease in children in developed countries, and this is largely preventable with appropriate treatment. This is a very important topic for us to discuss today because general pediatricians and emergency physicians have the very important job to not miss the diagnosis that can lead to lifelong effects. Great. So let's move forward with the case. Our patient is a previously healthy three-year-old boy who presents to the emergency department with a five-day history of fever as high as 39.5 degrees Celsius. He was evaluated by his primary care physician two days ago and was thought to have a viral upper respiratory infection. Supportive care with appropriate return precautions was recommended. Mom reports that her son has become increasingly irritable over the past few days. Also, she has recently noticed a fine red rash and some dryness and cracking of his lips. Dr. Hodges, how would you begin your evaluation of this child? This child does have some concerning signs of Kawasaki disease, but assuming he's clinically stable, we need to carefully work through the history and physical exam to make sure we're not missing an alternative diagnosis. It's not uncommon for many viral upper respiratory infections to present similar to the early signs of Kawasaki disease. Influenza, adenovirus, and now of course SARS-CoV-2, in addition to other common respiratory viruses, should be considered. Also, toxin-mediated diseases like streptococcal and staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome may present like this young child. Other considerations include measles if the child is not appropriately vaccinated, or in the right clinical setting, rocky-mounted spotted fever. A couple non-infectious causes to include in your differential include drug reactions and systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Tell us more about your patient's history. Mom reports that she first noticed a fever five days ago. She reports daily temperatures above 38 Celsius despite using antipyretics like acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Two days ago, she noticed a red rash in the child's groin that has expanded to his trunk and later dryness and cracking of his lips. Mom reports that he has continued to be increasingly irritable and oral intake is somewhat reduced. She reports one episode of emesis and some loose stools. There is no rhinorrhea, cough, travel history, or known sick contacts. He otherwise has no chronic medical problems and vaccines are up to date. So this is an interesting case. There are some findings here consistent with Kawasaki, but not yet enough to make the diagnosis. Kawasaki disease is most common in children less than five years of age, especially those with Asian and Pacific Islander descent. One thing to be sure to clarify with parents is the timing of the fever. 
Are the parents sure the child has had a fever above 38 Celsius or 100.4 Fahrenheit each of the last five days? It's not uncommon in the fall and winter for a young child to have back-to-back viral respiratory infections, and this makes it seem like the child has been sick for many days at a time. If you clarify the history, you might find there were actually a few days between illnesses that the child was not febrile. So, what parts of the history are consistent with Kawasaki disease? Elements of this history that are concerning for Kawasaki include the prolonged fever, rash, and oral mucosal changes. These children can also commonly have gastrointestinal symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea. Another thing to notice is the child's irritability. Children with Kawasaki disease may develop an aseptic meningitis. That means non-infectious inflammation of the meninges that may cause the child to be very irritable. Tell us about this child's exam. On physical exam, the child is fussy but consolable by his mother. Vital signs are notable for fever and tachycardia, but he is normotensive and pulse ox reads 98% on room air. There is redness of both conjunctiva without exudate. Tympanic membranes are non-bulging and clear. There is redness of his tongue with dryness and cracking of his lips. There are no tonsillar exudates or palpable cervical lymph nodes. Heart and lungs are normal to auscultation. Abdomen is soft and non-tender. Spleen and liver are not enlarged. There is a fine red rash mostly on his trunk and groin. Finally, redness and swelling are noted on his hand and feet without peeling. Okay, so there are a lot of interesting points to discuss on this exam. First, you notice bilateral non-exudative conjunctivitis. This is a part of the diagnostic criteria of Kawasaki disease. Other physical exam findings consistent with Kawasaki include redness and dryness of the oral mucosa, the rash, and extremity changes. Before we move on with the case, Dr. Shivaram, do you want to review how we diagnose Kawasaki disease? Sure. Remember that there is no perfect test to diagnose Kawasaki disease. Instead, we use a set of clinical criteria. This clinical criteria can be found in the Kawasaki Clinical Practice Guideline by McCrindle et al., published in the journal Circulation in 2017. Patients may be diagnosed with Kawasaki disease if they have 5 days of fever and 4 or more of the 5 principal clinical findings. These include, number 1, oral mucosal changes, number 2, bilateral conjunctivitis without exudate, number 3, erythematous maculopapular rash, number 4, extremity changes in the form of swelling of the hands and feet, followed by peeling later in the course of the illness, number 5, Finally, cervical lymphadenopathy with at least one lymph node measuring 1.5 cm. Okay, so let's back up. What do you mean by oral mucosal changes? Children with Kawasaki disease may have erythema and cracking of the lips, erythema of the oral and pharyngeal mucosa, and a so-called strawberry tongue due to the red prominent papillae. It also might be helpful if we include a few more details about each principal criteria. What do you think? That sounds great. Next up is conjunctivitis. Typically, patients suffering from Kawasaki disease have a non-exudative, limbic-sparing conjunctivitis, meaning the sclera immediately surrounding the iris will remain white. If you happen to see an exudative conjunctivitis, we should think about other diagnoses. The eye findings in Kawasaki are very different from the purulent exudative conjunctivitis that you may see with viral and bacterial infections. Children with infectious conjunctivitis may have their eyes matted shut when they wake up due to the purulent drainage. As you said, children with Kawasaki disease have a non-exudative, limbic-sparing conjunctivitis. That's right, Zach. Next, let's talk about the rash. This is usually a maculopapular, diffusely erythematous rash or even can look like erythema multiforme. 
It typically presents within 5 days of fever onset and localizes to the trunk and extremities and may be accentuated in the groin. This underscores the importance of carefully examining the patient's skin, especially under the diaper. Something to keep in mind is that if your patient has a bullous, vesicular, or petechial rash, this is not consistent with Kawasaki disease and you may need to find an alternative diagnosis like we discussed earlier. That's a good point. Next, the extremity changes are very distinctive for Kawasaki. Early in the disease course, you will notice edema of the palms and soles. There might be induration and tenderness as well. As Kawasaki disease progresses, desquamation of the fingers and toes may develop over the next two to three weeks. So, you are saying that the peeling of the fingers and toes is something that happens much later? I always thought that we use peeling as part of the diagnosis. Yes, peeling of the fingers and toes is a late finding that is very specific for Kawasaki disease. This sign can be used to confirm later the diagnosis, but we cannot wait for two to three weeks to initiate treatment. Usually, patients will have other extremity changes like redness and swelling that we can use to help make the diagnosis. And last, what do we need to know about cervical lymphadenopathy? Cervical lymphadenopathy is the least common of the principal criteria. If present, it is typically unilateral in the anterior cervical chain and measures 1.5 cm or greater. If this presents early in the disease course, you can see how this may easily be confused for bacterial lymphadenitis or other causes of cervical lymphadenopathy. Great, thanks for that overview. So to quickly review, classic Kawasaki disease is diagnosed in patients suffering from fever for 5 days along with 4 out of 5 of the principal clinical features. Many of our listeners may be familiar with the mnemonic crash and burn that is associated with this topic. The word crash is an acronym. C-R-A-S-H. C stands for conjunctiva. Patients with Kawasaki may have bilateral bulbar conjunctival injection without exudate. R stands for rash, which is typically a diffuse rash that can be described as maculopapular, erythroderma, or erythema multiforme-like. A stands for adenopathy. Kawasaki patients can present with unilateral cervical lymphadenopathy that is typically greater than 1.5 centimeters in diameter. S stands for strawberry tongue. Patients can present with several oropharyngeal symptoms such as erythema and cracking of the lips and mucosa and or the strawberry tongue with prominent papillae. H stands for hands to signify erythema and edema of the hands and feet in the acute phase with possible periungal desquamation in the subacute phase. And finally, burn stands for the prolonged fever that we previously mentioned. That being said, things don't always fit perfectly into the classic scenario. Dr. Hodges, what do you do when you suspect the diagnosis of Kawasaki disease, but the patient does not meet the full diagnostic criteria? That's a great question and not an uncommon scenario when we are caring for patients with possible Kawasaki disease. First, it's important to clarify the history. Sometimes children will have developed mucosal changes or a rash previously, but this might not be present at the time of your exam. This is also another opportunity to work through the differential diagnosis that we discussed earlier to not miss other causes. If you are unable to gather evidence for at least four of the five principal criteria by your history and exam, but still feel like Kawasaki disease is most likely, then we can talk about how to diagnose incomplete Kawasaki disease. Okay, to be clear, our patients don't have to have all of the symptoms present at one time. A history of previous symptoms can be very helpful to complete the diagnosis of Kawasaki disease. Next, tell us, what is incomplete Kawasaki? 
Unfortunately, the criteria of fever for five days in the presence of four of the five principal clinical findings is not perfectly sensitive and will miss a significant proportion of children later found to have Kawasaki disease. Before we discuss this in detail, remember that Kawasaki can be diagnosed in any child with prolonged fever with coronary artery aneurysms identified by an echocardiogram. However, most of the time coronary artery dilations do not occur until well after the first week of illness, so a normal echo does not rule out the diagnosis. Wow, it's scary that we might miss many cases of Kawasaki by just relying on the classic criteria. Are there certain patients who may be at higher risk for not having all of the clinical findings of complete Kawasaki disease? Yes, there are. Infants less than six months of age and children who lack eye or oral mucosal changes are more likely to have significant delays in diagnosis. In some cases, prolonged fever and irritability may be the only presenting symptoms. Unfortunately, delayed treatments with IVIG leads to a higher risk of developing coronary artery abnormalities in these young patients. To prevent these bad outcomes, we should suspect incomplete Kawasaki disease in children with fever for five days with at least two of the principal criteria or in infants with fever for seven days without another explanation. And that makes sense because I would not think about Kawasaki disease in such a young infant. So, how do you diagnose incomplete Kawasaki disease? Clinically, this can be difficult, but the American Heart Association has published a diagnostic algorithm that uses labs and an echocardiogram to make the diagnosis. In summary, if you have a patient with a prolonged fever and you suspect possible Kawasaki disease, the first-line laboratory tests are a C-reactive protein and an erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Remember that these are nonspecific inflammatory markers that we would expect to be elevated if our patient was suffering from Kawasaki. If either is elevated, specifically a CRP greater than 3 mg per deciliter or a SED rate greater than 40 mm per hour, then we should continue a more complete laboratory evaluation and an echocardiogram. Great. So that's a CRP greater than 3 mg per deciliter or a SED rate of 40 mm per hour. So if there is lab evidence of systemic inflammation in a patient with possible Kawasaki, what is our next step? The second-tier lab evaluation is also looking for other nonspecific findings in Kawasaki. This includes anemia, leukocytosis, pyuria, that being white blood cells in the urine, low albumin, and elevated liver enzymes. Thrombocytosis, or increased platelet count, is very common, especially after the seventh day of fever. It may even reach as high as 1 million two to three weeks into the illness. According to the AHA guideline, if there are three or more additional lab abnormalities or an abnormal echocardiogram, Kawasaki disease should be assumed and treatment started. On the other hand, if there is no laboratory evidence of systemic inflammation, then we should closely monitor the patient for clinical signs of Kawasaki disease and repeat labs if fever persists. One take-home point is that since peeling of the extremities is so closely linked with Kawasaki disease, if this occurs, you should screen with an echo. This is definitely not something to memorize, but instead refer to this algorithm if you're worried about a child having incomplete Kawasaki disease. Okay, so incomplete Kawasaki may be diagnosed in children with prolonged fever and evidence of systemic inflammation or if there are abnormalities on an echo. Dr. Shivaram, we have mentioned several times so far that an echo is very important to obtain in these patients. What is a typical cardiac involvement that you see in patients with Kawasaki? Remember that cardiovascular complications are the major cause of long-term morbidity and mortality in children with Kawasaki. Initially, these patients may have pericardial, myocardial, and valve inflammation in addition to coronary artery abnormalities. It's not uncommon for us to find small pericardial effusions and left ventricular diastolic dysfunction. Mild to moderate mitral valve regurgitation may also be found in 25% of the children at time of presentation. 
Most of the cardiac abnormalities resolve shortly after anti-inflammatory treatment. This is why it is so important to make the diagnosis and start treatment as soon as possible. It might be helpful if we focus in on the coronary artery abnormalities because this causes most of the long-term danger for our patients. How do you use echo to diagnose aneurysms in these patients? Remember that coronary artery abnormalities are considered to be specific enough to diagnose Kawasaki in those children who do not fulfill the complete criteria. The proximal coronary arteries are usually affected first, then later more distal segments may become involved. In fact, it is rare to have isolated distal coronary artery involvement. This makes echocardiogram a good test to screen for coronary artery abnormalities, especially since the left anterior descending and right coronary arteries are most commonly affected and can be visualized by echocardiogram in these young patients. Okay, just to be clear, the proximal left anterior descending and right coronary arteries are the most common sites of abnormalities. When I have read echo reports for our patients with possible Kawasaki, there are detailed measurements of each artery. What do we as frontline providers need to know? That's a good question. Basically, the larger the aneurysm, the greater the risk of thrombosis and myocardial infarction. Our patients that have abnormalities on initial evaluation will be followed more closely. Your pediatric cardiologist should be able to direct how often to re-image and when additional antiplatelet or anticoagulation may be indicated. I agree that our frontline providers don't need to memorize these details, but recognize that larger aneurysms are at much higher risk for complications and require closer follow-up. Thinking about less severe cases, how much can we be reassured if the initial echo is normal? It turns out that 80% of all patients who have persistent coronary artery dilatation will have some abnormalities on that initial echocardiogram. This means that if your patient's echo at the time of diagnosis is normal, it is unlikely they will develop future abnormalities. Even if there are some mild dilatation, most tend to resolve by 4-8 to eight weeks. The main reason we want the first echo early is that it directs how closely we follow the patient. If the initial echo is normal, then we need to repeat the echo at 1-2 to two weeks, then again at 4-6 to six weeks. If abnormalities are present, especially large aneurysm, then we will need to know much closer depending on the severity. I wanted to be sure to say that a normal echo does not rule out Kawasaki disease. If patients meet the clinical criteria but have a normal echo, they should still be treated. It's clear that getting the first echo as soon as possible is very important. Let's say that we have a patient with a new diagnosis of Kawasaki disease, but we are in a community hospital and do not have access to pediatric cardiology. Should we wait to get the echo before we start treatment? That's a good question. It's best to get your echo as soon as you suspect or diagnose Kawasaki, but you should not delay treatment for the lack of an echocardiogram. Remember that in addition to coronary abnormalities, patients with Kawasaki may have left ventricular dysfunction, pericardial effusion, and mitral valve abnormalities. In fact, 5% may even present with cardiogenic shock. Because of the risk of worsening cardiac function, we do not want to delay treatment even to obtain the initial echocardiogram. Thank you. I wanted to finish up with treatment. Let's come back to our case. Our patient was a 3-year-old boy with fever for 5 days and he met 4 of the 5 principal criteria, which means he has complete Kawasaki disease. Dr. Hodges, how would you direct treatment for this patient? First, remember the primary goal with initiating treatment in the acute phase is to put a stop to further inflammation and to minimize the risk of thrombosis formation in those patients with coronary artery abnormalities. 
The initial treatment of Kawasaki disease is largely unchanged since 1986 when combination intravenous immunoglobin, or IVIG, and aspirin were shown to reduce the number of persistent coronary artery abnormalities from 23% to about 4%. IVIG is thought to be the most important anti-inflammatory agent and should be given as early as possible and ideally within the first 10 days since the onset of fever. It will typically be administered as a single infusion of 2 grams per kilogram over the duration of 10 to 12 hours. Even if a patient is beyond the 10-day window due to a missed earlier diagnosis, treatment should still be initiated if there are any symptoms of persistent inflammation. Okay, so the initial treatment includes 2 grams per kilogram of IVIG. Anything else that we need to know about IVIG before moving on to aspirin? Yeah, a couple things. First, although the risk of coronary artery abnormalities is significantly decreased, about 20% of children will still develop transient coronary artery dilations even after appropriate treatment. And second, for our primary care pediatricians, if a young child receives 2 grams per kilogram of IVIG, live virus vaccines like measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella should be delayed for 11 months after the IVIG infusion. Great. It's important to remember that you might have to delay the MMR and varicella vaccine after IVIG. Transitioning to aspirin, Dr. Shivaram, how should we dose this to treat Kawasaki? Aspirin is used for its antiplatelet effects and does not seem to reduce the risk of coronary abnormalities. There actually is some variability in how aspirin is dosed for these patients. In the United States, it is common to give high dose at 80 to 100 mg per kilogram per day in divided doses every 6 hours until the fever is resolved for 2 to 3 days. In Europe, a moderate dose of 30 to 50 mg per kilogram per day is preferred, but there is no evidence that one dose is superior to the other. Regardless of which dose you choose at the start, after the fever has defervesced, the aspirin dosing should be reduced to only 3 to 5 mg per kilogram per day for at least the next 6 to 8 weeks. Treatment with low-dose aspirin may even be prolonged if there are coronary artery abnormalities. Okay, for our listeners, that's high-dose aspirin while the patient is febrile and has ongoing inflammation, but then reduced to low-dose after the patient has been afebrile for 48 to 72 hours. Another question, what about Ray syndrome? I know that we don't typically give young children aspirin because of this risk. Great question, and I'm glad you brought this up. Remember that Ray syndrome has been described in children who received aspirin while acutely infected with varicella or influenza. This is thought to be a possibility with high-dose aspirin therapy, but this has not been associated with the lower dose. Screening for a varicella or an influenza infection is a good idea before starting aspirin. Just like anything else, the risks and benefits should be weighed for every patient. Thank you. Other than IVIG and aspirin, is there anything else we need to know about treatment? Yeah, I just wanted to mention one last thing. Unfortunately, 10 to 20% of patients with Kawasaki will have persistent fever after receiving IVIG and aspirin. If their fever persists for at least 36 hours after IVIG infusion, these children are diagnosed with IVIG-resistant KD and are at much higher risk of developing coronary artery abnormalities. Managing IVIG-resistant Kawasaki is probably a little bit beyond the scope of today's discussion. Most commonly, patients are given a repeat dose of IVIG, but other choices include further immunomodulation with steroids, infliximab, cyclosporin, and inokinra, among others. The take-home point is that if your hospital does not have a treatment protocol for IVIG-resistant Kawasaki disease, this might be the right time to involve your other specialists like rheumatology or infectious disease for their valuable input. Very good. 
We have covered a lot of material today that applies to the general pediatrician, emergency physician, and pediatric hospitalists. Dr. Shivaram, do you want to wrap things up with some take-home points for our listeners? Sure. First, remember that Kawasaki disease is a vasculitis that affects medium-sized arteries, most commonly diagnosed in children under 5 years of age. Next, make the diagnosis in children with fever for 5 days who also have 4 of the 5 principal criteria. Those are rash, conjunctivitis, oral mucosal changes, extremity changes, and lymphadenopathy. Third, don't forget about incomplete Kawasaki disease in children who do not fulfill the above criteria. Fourth, remember that cardiovascular involvement at the time of diagnosis is common and even 5% of the patients can present in cardiogenic shock. Fifth, treat with IVIG and aspirin and get the first echocardiogram as soon as possible. And finally, if there is concern for severe cardiac involvement or IVIG-resistant Kawasaki disease, get your referral center on the phone early so the child can get multidisciplinary care that they need. That's a great summary. Thank you so much, Dr. Shivaram and Dr. Hodges, for joining me for today's discussion of Kawasaki disease. Thanks for all your hard work, Sonal. I enjoy being here. Thanks, Zach and Sonal. I had a great time. An additional thanks to Drs. Rita Basali, Lizel Domingo, and Jalissa Patel, who all provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Check out our website in the description of this podcast for show notes and more information about our pediatric residency at the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purpose only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.